You're listening to Magrito Podcast Network, celebrating the culture of Chicanos and Latinos one story and voice at a time. Connect on social, on Instagram and Facebook at Magrito. Find all the Magrito Podcast Network shows over at magrito.net. Ladies and gentlemen and low lifes, we're here with another episode of Emo Brown, the podcast brought to you by the wonderful people at Grasshopper. All your medicinal, recreational cannabis needs, you know what to do. Drop that Emo Brown social club card, get your 15% discount. Don't want to pop in? GHBuds.com, they will deliver to you today. Excuse me if I fanboy out a little bit today, but I got a cool guy that I just met probably a year ago. He's going to tell us his story. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Ruin. Hey, what's up? What's up, man? Good to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, man. I'm I'm a fan of a lot of the people that come on here. But for me to actually like legit say, I'm going to fan out a little bit on this because I've been nervous the whole week leading up to actually sitting down and talking to you. Stoked that you gave me a book to look over and, and, and review before you even put it out. My wife, he knows I was nervous for this. I never interviewed some cool people that make me nervous, but you're intimidating, man. Because the whole punk rock, the punk rock world and, and everything that it encompasses, I always feel like I got to like represent. I got to step up. You know, I got a brewer named Three Punk Ales and I constantly feel like I'm judged and being observed and eh. But having you here, I almost feel like, man, I'm doing something right if I'm getting the attention of you, Mr. Jim Ruin. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why I'm so in love with what you do. Oh, come on now. Now, you know my wife. She would be cracking up if she uh, heard you say about me being intimidating. My man. But I've been to, and this is how we met. Uh, before you jump in, I'll, uh, this is how we met. We've met over during pandemic. We were both uh, connected by Chicle. Chicle and his wife, Selena, and their dinner parties, which are now fucking awesome. I love going to their dinner parties. Because there's always cool people there. And in this instance, the first time you guys were there, you and your beautiful wife, Nubia, I sat down. My wife and I were there and a couple other people were there. And we just start shooting the shit. We're eating amazing food. Some of us are having cocktails. We're just having a good time. Smoking some weed, whatever. Whatever's going on, creating the element. And then out of nowhere, Chico's like, oh, man, you know how you fucking hate bad religion? I'm like, yeah. Jim wrote a bio- an autobiography about it. I was like, what? And then just, that's how we met, man. <laughs> so it's a little intimidating, you know? Yeah, well, um, well, gee, I don't know how far to back up, but yeah, I was in the part of the Golden Drina Collective with, with Nuvia and Enrique. Oh, you were? Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, Joni, who now has her thing going uh, with uh, the Malpicho Collective. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sarah from the Chula Maiz, you know, the amazing jewelry that she does. We had the little shop on Logan Avenue, and we had it going for about four years. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, it, it kind of shut down. That's not awesome, but it is awesome that you were part of that Mercado. I had zero idea that you were affiliated with the Golondrina and everything that went in there. I know uh, other heavy hitters involved, El Dicky Islands and Ricardo Isas was part of that as well. Such a cool little space, man. Yeah, Such a cool space. Our thinking was that like something cool was happening down there. And, uh, you know, my wife is a visual artist and I'm a writer, so... Uh, we've been supporting stuff that's been going on down on Logan Avenue um, for a long time, uh, all the way back to like the spot and uh, Chicano Park and just going to Chicano Park uh, fundraisers and things like that. And so with everything that was going on, we felt like we better get in this spot before it turns into like a, 
you know, artisan cheese shop or some bullshit <laughs> like that. And, uh, and you know what? To their credit, man, Barrio Logan has been really like strong and, and not bowing down and allowing a lot of big corporate businesses to come in because to this day, there's a lot of family owned restaurants, a lot of family owned pubs, bars, uh, stores. It's an awesome spot, man. It really is. I really like the energy there. And, uh, you know, we had a studio around the corner and so, um, we had to move out of that space too. But we got another one down the street, right by Hayes Burgers. So we're you're in you're in the spot, man. You you are in the center of everything, right there. Yeah. So we we're not part of it anymore. But it, but it was cool because it was it was funny because it's like you know we had like all these Latino artists and and me, you know, a white guy, you know, who writes books was kind of like the the sore thumb. But you know, just everything was super cool. You know, we never got any static or anything like that. I'm just. Blended right in. Because you, you, you keep it real, man. You, you don't fake the funk. I feel like you you have a, 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 your talent obviously is in writing. I love reading. I love listening to storytellers. I love talking to storytellers. I just, I feel like when I find somebody that can really capture my attention, I, I latch on. I'm like, tell everybody, listen to this, read this, do this. I just did this. This is awesome. You fall in that category for me, man. Well, we did some, well, thank you, but we did some really cool stuff in there. I mean, I don't know if you ever went into the Golandrina, mm -hmm. but it was tiny. It was very tiny, maybe a little bit bigger than the yeah. spot we're in right now. It's, it's legitimately about the size of this office yeah. and there's mugs and other art and clothing along the sides. And then the, the back, you had the register. So, um, I did this, uh, book with, uh, Keith Morris. Mm. He's of course the, uh, the founding vocalist for black flag circle jerks off Midget hand job, and just an amazing human being, punk rock legend, icon, a pillar. He came down to Golindrina and did a book signing. Did he really? Yeah. What? He totally did. We had people lined up outside the block, you know, and it was one of those things where maybe not a lot of people knew about it at first, but then word got out and it spread really fast. And what was an even bigger hit was an event we did with my friend Lowell Tolhurst. And Lowell is the founding drummer of a little English band known as The Cure. Never heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your thing. It's a Mexican that never heard of The Cure. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got to know Lowell because we have the same agent. And uh, so when his book came out, um, it was like, hey, you want to, he lives in Santa Monica now. He's like, hey, you want to come down and do a little signing at our little shop? And he was like, Lowell, being the total gentleman, was very gracious and came down, and that and the, and the block went banana. I was gonna say, man, you can't go to Barry Logan and bring from somebody from the Cure and expect it to be cool, calm, and collected. Yeah, so it was kind of cool. We did some cool things in that tiny little spot, and you know, I had my you know my books and my zines, and I would get to talk to other people that like to read, and you know, other just it was just really cool. I really loved working the shop, and just you never know who's gonna walk in and talk to you about art. Well, tell me a little bit about that, the origins, the origins of Jim. How did you start? How did your interest get peaked into becoming a writer or just simply writing? Was the path fanzines and then ultimately into figuring out your genre? How did all this start? You know, it, it's a funny story and it has like a new wrinkle to it that I just learned a couple of weeks ago. Um, but like I was a terrible student. I went to Catholic school and I started out all right. And I don't know what happened to little Jimmy along the way, but I really just lost interest in school. And, uh, and by the time I was like barely made it out of high school and uh, also a Catholic school. And so by the end of that, I was like, everyone else is going on to college. It's basically a college prep school. I mean, you know, it's a Catholic school. It costs money to go to. And I ended up enlisting in the Navy. 
like, and I remember it was me and this other woman who like went into the air force or something like that. But out of a class of like 400 or something, like just about everybody went on to college. Everyone went to school. It was like a weird environment like that. You know, we were very middle-class because my dad was a, you know, he was a naval officer. My mom was a nurse and uh, there was four of us kids. And, uh, I think they put us in Catholic school just so they wouldn't have to worry about, you know, what we were going to wear each day. We just put on the same uniform, you know, because they weren't that big into the religion or anything like that. But, um, you know, I, I really struggled. And when I joined the Navy, um, it didn't really get any better. Ugh. And uh, one of the great things that happened is it sent me here to the great city of San Diego, right? Got me out of uh, Northern Virginia. And Navy town for sure. Got me to Southern California, which I... Turns out I really liked and was really good for me because things were just so constrained and conformist and all that kind of stuff. And what's funny is that as a kid, I loved to read and all through high school, I read books and stuff like that, but I just never really was able to connect the dots with my own schoolwork, you know? So um, one of the things that happens when you're, when you're living on a ship and you get in trouble, like you have a little too much fun on the beach or maybe you get in a fight or something like that, they take away your liberty and you get stuck on the ship, right? They won't let you off. They don't let you off. It's called 45 and 45, 45 days restriction, 45 days extra duty. 45 fucking days? Yeah, like six weeks. Jesus. So I got intimate with the uh, the ship's library, which is kind of a joke because our ship was so small. It was like, you know, 300 people on the whole ship. So our library was a little cardboard box in the forward cruise lounge. And I would just go in there and see what was there and, and just read everything, whether it was Dean Koontz, Stephen King. But then, I, I mean, I read some amazing stuff in there, too. I read Jack Kerouac for the first time in there. I read uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. You know, it, wasn't, it was kind of like a little, my own college literature class in that little cardboard box in the Navy, right? And 45 days to accomplish it. <laughs> and, uh, and then, so, um, you know, I was... After I got out of the Navy, I had all these benefits to go to college. So I said, all right, let me give this a try. And I did that. And uh, I was thinking I'd be like a computer science major. I was still very much trying to follow what my dad wanted me to do, right? You know, I was the oldest oldest kid. and fought, You know, I was a rule follower. I mean, I liked punk rock and all that stuff, but I didn't really see myself that way, you know? So. Well, it's you guys that are the scary punk rockers, man. All the serious glass goring types that follow the rules and you see those guys in a pit. You're like, nah, I'm not going around that guy. That guy's got some pent up aggression. He's ready to let out. Yeah, it was it was a little. Um, well, one of the things I do in the Navy to get sidetracked a little bit is uh, I would kind of blend in with the skinheads, which, kind of, which is not smart because you those people are are more dangerous than than anything. But anyway, um so I go back to school and I'm in my freshman composition class. And instead of writing about my pet or, you know, my, <laughs> you know, my stories of being a little like, like a lot of my peers were writing about, I'm writing about helicopter operations or about getting wasted in the Philippines or about, you know, getting arrested by shore patrol in Japan. And, and so my teacher was just, my professor was eating this up. It's like, you need to keep doing this. And I was like, really? And so that kind of lit the lit the fire. For An idea me. was born. Yeah, and um, so that's kind of when I started to think about like, hey, this this is maybe something that I'm good at, and uh, you know, because I came out of the Navy and I had all I knew was what I didn't want to do in life, which was be in the Navy. I didn't really have a lot of confidence or anything like that because 
I hadn't really improved myself, right? You know, like a lot of people, they join the military to become a better person, to get their shit together, to do all that. So I hadn't really done that. All I did was read. (laughs) And yeah, get in trouble. And so, and I barely got out and it was like, you know, they were like going to take away my college benefits and all. I mean, it, it was really dicey and stressful right up until the very end. And, uh, so I didn't come out like, you know, um, I'm a changed man. I'm going to set the world on fire. I really like had a lot of doubts going to college. So when that professor, you know, took that interest in me and my writing, I, I just latched onto it. And it also didn't hurt that like he was feeding me books. He's like, now you got to read this. Now you read that. Oh, you read this by Kerouac. Now you got to read that. And so um, I really it was enabling you to grow. Yeah. I really benefited from the attention. And then that teacher would kind of pass me around to other teachers to be like, you know, this person, this kid is, doesn't know anything and want, and is hungry to learn. And so like, okay, we'll read this and I'll do that. And so I had a pretty amazing college experience that way because of, uh, because of my teachers. So that method of learning worked a little bit more for you. And the, the people actually taking interest in your interests and feeding those interests with books. Weird how that works, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, um, when I got out of college, you know, I, I was, I loved uh, punk rock, but mm. like, it was one of those things where I, uh, you know, it was uh, in the Navy, I got turned on to all this cool music. Right. But I went back to Virginia for college because that's where you have to go back to your home state to get in-state tuition and all that. So as soon as I was done, I went back to California and that's kind of like where my life really began. And, uh, I started writing for punk rock zines. And that's where I learned, you know, you start with like record reviews and once people learn that they can depend on you and you're not going to turn in, you know, shit sandwich uh-huh. 50 times, you know, <laughs> two weeks late, um, then they'll let you start doing interviews. And I was writing for uh, Flipside, which uh, was like one of the first LA punk fanzines. And, uh, and it, w- it was really cool. And I really got into it. I mean, there was, I was flipping through an issue from like 1998, um, not too long ago. And it's like, I did an interview with H2O. Wow. I did an interview with Gary Newman. You know, um, I was writing about Warp Tour and my column, you know, it was just like all, you know, there was a bad religion article in there. It was just like so much cool stuff in that one issue of Flipside. It was really like a punk rock Bible back then. So you were kind of sharpening your teeth, honing your skills with everything, kind of prepping you to what you currently do. You know, it's kind of sitting down and doing interviews, conducting interviews, gathering information, data mining in order to put out a new book, a new project. Yeah, but I didn't really see it that no. way. You know, I mean, it was, it's punk rock and it's zines. You write, no, you, you know, you don't make money off of zines. You know, it's, it's, uh, you do it for access to the music you love. That's that's what it's always been about, and that's why I'm drawn to that culture because it's it's you tap into your real passion for something, you know. How did you start running into these artists like a Keith Morris and getting the opportunity presented to you, or creating your own opportunity to sit down and say, "Hey, I want to write. I want to write a book about you." Um, that you know, it's a real. That's a great question. It's a real sideways. There's no like. I mean, looking back, it can kind of feel like, oh yeah, well- This is why. (laughs) Yeah, you went from punk rock zines to punk rock books, you know, no brainer, but it it really didn't feel that way at all. And, uh, you know, I was also writing short stories. I was writing novels. I've got a whole bunch of novels that are just kind of sitting in the- Just waiting. 
well, you know, some of them are going to stay there forever. You know, you, you kind of learn by doing type of thing. But um, but I still love re- fiction. I love writing stories. I write book reviews. For I love reading time. your newsletter. We were talking about that earlier. I mean, pimp your newsletter, man. I feel more people need to be on board with what, what everything goes on in that. I look forward to getting it. As soon as I see it, I'm like, yeah, I'm at work and I'll t- take my break and I'll just kind of look it over my phone. And I love that it's so accessible. Right on, right on. Yeah, uh, someone described it as uh, as like a chatty punk rock newsletter, which is which I wasn't sure how I felt about it at first, but I'm like, yeah, that's It right. makes sense. <laughs> it is chatty. You know, I, uh, it's called Message from the Underworld, which is, of course, based on a great song by L.A. punk rock heroes, The Weirdos. And um, it was going to be a name for a uh, an interview series I was going to do with this, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, 3 a.m., like an online uh, literature, art and literature site that's still up based, uh, I think, out of France or England. I don't even remember anymore. But the first interview I did, and I never did a second one, was um, with Brendan Mullen. And Brendan Mullen is a fascinating guy. He's the guy that started The Mask, um, which was kind of like the punk playground and this huge space underneath the Pussycat Porno Theater in Hollywood. And it started out as kind of like a rehearsal space. And everyone from the Stains to the Go-Go's had like a little, were there. Fucking crazy. And, and then they started having shows, these kind of very illegal shows. Um, where there was no stage, you know, maybe a drum riser or something like that. And half when it got started, half the people in the audience were also in bands. So there was like no real distinction between, you know, the, the performer and the audience, which I think is a really kind of important part of the whole underground punk scene is that lack of, there's no barrier between us, nope. you know? The only difference is that one of us is on this side of the microphone, yeah. the, the other side. Somebody's all, strumming, somebody's listening. Same energy, same passion, same uh, troubles, right? You know, so um, so he was a, he was a hero of mine, and he was writing some amazing books. He uh, he uh, collaborated with um, some other folks on "We Got the Neutron Bomb." He also uh, collaborated with some people on the Lexicon Devil, the Darby Crash story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a photo book with- Another uh, LA legend right there, right? man. Oh, man. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. Who were like, um, you know, people like to clown on the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but they were like- Guilty. <laughs> they were Well, they were underground for years before they got big. So they were like huge supporters of mm-hmm. all the punks. Yeah. And the punk scene. Um, every punk rocker, rocker has a uh, Chili Pepper story. Um, and it's a good one. Let me hear it. Well, I mean, here's one, like one time, uh, uh, Keith, um, I'm just, I'm, I can't remember who, well, one time Keith Morris filled in for Anthony Kiedis in a red hot joy pepper show. Oh shit. How'd that go over? <laughs> he didn't know half the words, but it was, uh, it was like a, and it was a big show too. It was like Anthony had his drug issues and didn't show up. And so Keith just jump up on the stage and, you know, everyone else was trying to help out as much as they could, but for not for one night, Keith was the singer. Hell like yeah. the, and that was like one of those weird punk shows too, where like I think it was at the at the um, at the Olympic with like the Blasters and like just one of those weird mixes of shows that seemed to only happen in the late seventies. You know, reading the books that I've read and about that era of punk rock, like I've mentioned before, there's been a few books that I've read. That seems like a wild ass era in LA, especially like uh, at the beginning of bands that are more used to like a no effects and their story and growing up and watching bands play 
and all of like, it, it was just, it didn't seem like a safe space, man. It seemed like it was fucking bananas. There was no guarantee you'd come out, you know, unbloodied. You'd probably get in a Donnybrook, a little fight here and there. You weren't out there. You better expect to get your ass kicked or to encounter a lot of violence. Cause those shows back in the day, I'm assuming not as fun as people make them out to seem. Well, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And it's also kind of sad, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, suburban kids. There was a lot of skaters, right, who were, you know, out there, like, skating and listening to, you know, what, Aerosmith and, and shit like that. Winger. You know? <laughs> Not even that, even before that. You know, just stuff that, like, you don't associate with, say, skate culture today because it seems in many ways like punk and skateboarding were just made for each other. But in the early days, those early legends – I mean, they were listening to Black Sabbath. They were listening to Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and all that stuff. They wanted heavy music. They wanted extreme music, and that's all they had, right? So, of course, that culture gravitated to punk um, in a huge way. It was kind of like you really couldn't stop it. And um, But the, the violence was no joke, and the police fed into it. The media fed into it. So that attracted a lot of like genuine psychopaths yeah. and people who just went to shows looking for trouble. Looking for trouble, looking to get into fights, looking to use it as a release. Yeah, and, and as a result, a lot of the bands, uh, a lot of the venues were like, nope, no more punk rock. Uh, and so bands had to like literally change their identity, and people fell out of the scene and were like, you know, especially, you know, women, uh, people who didn't, weren't like, you know, didn't want to go to war every time they went to a punk rock show. They were like, yeah, I'm going to go to college or I'm going to join this <laughs> cow punk band or do something, get into heroin or do something different, you know, something safer, <laughs> right? <laughs> which leads to mean to one of my favorite books now, legitimately the bad religion story. You're, you're guilty for turning me on to bad religion in a positive way. Like if you talk to peeps that I grew up with and some of my friends, I was not a big bad religion fan. I was once upon a time I was in a band and um, loudspeaker was, is a local uh, radio show by 91 X hosted by Tim piles. And he would have bands on there. And I remember we got an opportunity to play one time and it's so happened to be on the night that bad religion and no use for a name. We're going to be playing. So we go in there and blah, blah, blah. And we're walking. I was like, Hey man, good job. Hey, thank you. Little fucking idiot. 18 year old, 19 year old kid that I was at the time, you know, always ready to talk shit. Um, are you excited to see bad religion today? And I was like, fuck no, I'm <laughs> fuck. No, I don't want to watch bad religion. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching no use for a name, big Tony Sly fan, la la. And it's, and he's like, Oh, kind of, kind of give me that look. And I turned away. And then one of the guys in my band and somebody who worked at the station was like, you moron. It's a singer from bad religion. And I was like, Oh my bad. Like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so th- th- that hate was real. It was and It was just for me. It was just like, uh, just another privileged band from LA, you know, getting all the breaks, catching all the opportunities, being in the right place, knowing the right people. And now, Oh, look, he started a record, record label. Oh, look, now they're touring and they're doing this. And that's how I painted a lot of these bands. But then I actually listened to the book. Holy shit. I couldn't be more off on making a call on what bad religion were. They were a hard working blue collar band that went through a shit ton of struggles to ultimately become what they are. They should have died and broken up many times during that tenure. But here you are going one of their shows just over the weekend on Saturday. So they're still around banging around. And now I'm a fucking fan. Yeah. Now I love them and I go home and I listen to them and, and I do my things and I teach the kids. Oh, look, this is bad religion. It's a good band. <laughs> it's, it's funny though, because I think we've all been there, right? It's like that, 
that moment in Repo Man where uh, where Otto is watching our friend Keith Morris, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, the lounge version of the Circle Jerks. He's like, I, I remember when these guys were cool. <laughs> and every punk rocker has that version. Always. It. I mean, it, it's kind of inescapable. And, you know, whether it's because we have like this real hardcore nostalgia where we want to keep things the way they were at a certain age of our life or, or, or what, but um, they're a band that just kind of forces you to expand uh, what you think you know about them be- just because the story is so comprehensive and, uh, and the music is so diverse. Um, but I, Bad Religion is funny because they were one of those when I was in the Navy and um, I remember I was a skinhead's house and I was getting ready to leave and go back to Virginia. And I was excited to not be in the Navy, but sad to be leaving, you know, California and this, all that behind. He made me this, we made a tape at his house in Ocean Beach and um, Bad Religion's back to the, um, Back to the known. Back to the known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The EP, uh-huh. the five song EP in it with uh, Frogger, um, and the theme song and uh, Yesterday, uh, Turn Over a New Leaf. All those great classic songs are on there. And I had it on a tape, and I wore that tape out when I was in college. I just loved it. And then when I came back to California, it took a few years, but when I saw him again, it was like it was very different, right? It wasn't the same band. Like there were like. Greg's wearing like a golf shirt. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Que pasó aquí? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean? It's like, it's not, it was, it was different. It wasn't the same. And I wasn't prepared, prepared for that. Um, so I went through that too. Um, but when I started uh, researching the band, what I did was I started with set list because how do you start, you know, this is, they had like 16 studio albums, EPs, especially a Christmas fucking album. Yes, they did. <laughs> I've heard it. Like, where do you start with that? So I started going to set lists. You know? Which is awesome and very smart, man, because these are the songs that speak to them the most, obviously, since these are the songs they choose to play on a day in and day out on tour. Yeah, well, yes and no, because Bad Religion is one of those bands that they change their set list all the time. All right, okay. All the time, night to night, show to show, tour to tour. It's never the same show. They keep it fresh that way, you think? Kind of keep themselves engaged or? Oh, yeah. Because I, 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 I traveled with them and I saw it. And I saw them agonize over it because the musicians who are listening will know, like, you can't play 10 rippers in a row because the band is going to be furious at you because you need you need to rest, you know. Um, your singer will get burnt out. You know, you need you need to pace it in a certain way. And, and the audience, too. They need, you know, one something up, something down, something in between, you know, take them for a ride. Um, but when I was with them, they, I, they, Jay was doing the set list, Jay Bentley, the bass player. Bass player. He would uh, work with the tour manager and they would like, they have a database of set lists. And if they were like, let's say they were playing Riot Fest in Chicago, they'd be like, okay, when was the last time we were in Chicago and playing shows here? It's like, okay, we don't want to play the exact same set. We want to give them something a little bit different. They would do that in Italy. They would do that in Florida. They would do that everywhere. So somebody's documenting behind the scenes for these guys. Like, hey, man, this is what we played in uh, 87 when we were here in Finchi, Italy. All right, we can't do that. And we go back again. Yeah, I mean, they're, oh, they're man. conscious of it and aware of it. And they'd be like, okay, well, we also know if we're playing this small town, that people from other areas are going to come in. So let's... So let's make it, you know, make it fresh, make it. New. That's awesome. That's making it personal. Yeah, I mean, when I went to see him Sunday, I heard songs that I've never heard them play live before. And I've, I've seen him play dozens of times now, you know, 
And I think what happened is, is that after, this is just me speculating. Go ahead. I don't know. So if uh, Jay, Greg, or anyone listening, like, I, this is me speculating on a hypothesis here. But I think like after the pandemic, when they first got to play, they were so excited that they, they just ripped it up. And they were like, oh, geez, that was fucking hard. Let's, let's mix in some slow jams in here and make this a little easier and, and fun too, you know, to, so we don't burn ourselves out, you know, you know, on the next leg of this world tour that they're on. How old are they? Um, they're all in their fifties, if I'm not mid to late fifties, roughly. It's, it's like, that's amazing. They've been around so long, but they're relatively young because they were fucking te- like They were 18 when they started, man. And they're still ripping in their mid to late fifties. 15. Jesus 15 years Christ. old, Greg Graffin was, right? So like, it's pretty amazing. Were you a fan when you started to do this project? Oh yeah. I mean, I was a fan. I mean, I, I knew that I loved that, that EP. I mean, I, you know, I had that nostalgia. Wore, wore it to a nub. And then I also knew about that, like, you know, what happened in 80, in 88, which was, you know, suffer then no control and against the grain where they just like blew everyone. The trajectory just went up, man. They created a whole new sound. They created a whole new sound that everybody else around this started mimicking. And it just became a little bit more melodic. Yeah. It went from screaming and just kind of, things, everybody playing their instruments individually. So I feel like everybody coming together and saying, we can do this. And then whew, that's when I started listening and paying more attention. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, there, there's a lot of things they, they will not say they invented it. They will always point to other bands that were influences when they were starting out, like from the germs on mm-hmm, the parkour mm-hmm. side, but also the adolescents who were doing a lot of those harmonizing vocals and don't get credit for it. everyone kind of want to says the descendants started that, um, but the the adolescents were doing it too, right? The, Amoeba comes to mind when right. you say adolescence, and I hear that because there's a lot of harmonizing and, and everybody's jump. Great bands came out of that era, man. Yeah. So, um, and, and and Bad Religion wasn't part of that first wave of LA punk. Yep. You know, they came out a little bit later. I mean, and I think they formed in '80, and how could help be any worse? Came out in '82. So. Um, so yeah, now I lost my train of thought. Where well, what goes into a project? When you take on a bad religion, like you, you obviously you did your research, you started researching their set lists and then you travel on I, it, my ignorance. I'm assuming it's like almost famous. You go on tour with them. You're just kind of in the back with the little notepad and over now and then you, you lick the tip of the pencil and you're like taking notes and just kind of like that fly on the wall, looking to see what's interesting. What goes into prepping for writing this book and ultimately interviewing them and collecting all of your notes you took from being on the road with them, sitting down at a desktop uh, a computer or laptop and then just putting it all together. Yeah. Well, um, I did that one kind of old school in that I was still kind of hooked on, uh, this, uh, Sony mini disc recorder. You know what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. 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 For sure. Those little mini CDs in the plastic cases. Mm-hmm. I still have it and I still use it from time to time. Um, but now the, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, the digital recording on the phones and the artificial intelligence, going into the transcription makes it all so much faster and easier that my days of sitting down with tapes and little mini discs are no mass, no mass. <laughs> I, I would use that. And I would, I would record people um, individually and also in tandem and, you know, occasionally in groups. Uh, but you, you really get like, you get the good stuff one-on-one. I, I did interview Greg and Brett at the same time at uh, Brett's house one time 
And that was really funny because we were getting ready to start and Greg just kind of wanders over to Brett's refrigerator and opens it up and looks in like, you know, what's he got to eat? And I'm like, man, he's probably been doing this since he was a fucking teenager, yeah. right? You know, yeah. like, you know, I, I wouldn't go to your house and open a fridge and see like, you got any salami? What's going on? Or chi? What, what do you got? But like, that's, that's how their connection is. They can, they've been, you know, brothers since, you know, they were kids, you know? They've been through war together. Yeah. They've been through everything together. The lows, the highs, the, I need a new drummer. I need a new this. I need a new that. Interchanging bands. Okay, I'll come back. All right, I forgive you. Or maybe I don't, but we just sound better when we're together type of deal. Yep, that's exactly right. And with uh, to answer your question, I mean, I had over a quarter of a million words transcribed. Oh, wow. All the different people that I interviewed. And when I put it all together, really, um, I, I look for conflict. I look for trouble. Right. Like where are, where are things, where are they not getting along? Where is the band running into difficulties? Where, you know, where's the, basically where's the drama, right? Because that is really interesting and how, how people get into scrapes and how they get out of it is, is really like everybody likes those stories. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't matter if you're a punk rock band or you're, um, you know, have your own cooking show. People want, people love struck stories about struggle. And Getting out of that struggle, the comeback story. You know, I don't know if that's Americanizes, but we love watching somebody fail and somebody come back. I mean, most recently, like a Tiger Woods story, you know, I was a big, I'm a big Tiger Woods fan and he went through all of his things. And then he just came back this week and played at the Masters, like on the big, large scale. And it's like, everybody's just on board watching him play and do his thing. Same thing, I'm assuming. How difficult is it for you to dive into the drama, drive, dive into the tension, and were the guys eager to share their stories with you? Were a little bit standoffish, or because they obviously invited you on tour to do this project for them? Well, um, I'll tell you what made it a lot easier. Um, we'll get real for a second. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been clean and sober now for 13 years. Felicidades, jefe. Thank you. And um, it's a you know it's it's a big part of my life. It's it's how uh, you know that's how I see the world, right? And I know this is going to be a little bit of a shock to you, but there's a lot of drinking and drug abuse in punk rock. Imagine that. I know. <laughs> Breaking <laughs> news. <laughs> right. So like, I think, you know, especially for some of these OG punks, there's like, there's, there's two ways out, you know, that's you very true. Man. Or you go in the ground. Yeah. Get clean or get carried out. And it's, it really doesn't matter how big of a success you are. It doesn't protect you from that. You know, whether you're like an underground, you know, punk here in, on the streets or playing the big festivals and stadiums. We, we just saw that um, just a couple of weeks yeah. ago, right? Yeah. So. R.I.P. Taylor. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, it, and it's, that's always going to be part of the story. So the members of, several members of Bad Religion, Brett, uh, the, the, the main people that I talked to, um, Jay Bentley, you know, Brett Garowitz, um, had been through their struggles. They were two of the founding members. And uh, Brian Baker, who uh founding member of Minor Threat. Hello. And has now been with a band close to 30 years. Longer than, yeah, I was like going to say. He's, it, it's weird to see the, the formation of this group, man. Yeah, like, and some people don't even know, which is kind of funny. Like, they may have, they gave up, they they stopped listening to Bad Religion and at a certain point and don't even know, like. Who's in the band now? What an amazing guitar player that is. Is, uh, they have there, but 
So I think the fact that Brett and Jay and Brian had all been through the program and have all done that and reflected on their lives and like it really kind of real they they realize okay I have a problem uh, with this substance but then when you move past that it's like oh there's a problem with the band and it's me um, or it's a problem with this record label and it's me you know like there's a problem on the tour bus and it's me is. I mean, it takes a lot to uh, to acknowledge that. A lot of people don't make that step, you know, never get to that point where they, you know, can take those things on and grow as a human being. So um, I think the fact that so many members of that band have been through that process, it was a big help. And interestingly, the singer, Greg, uh, he hasn't, but he never had an interest in drugs or alcohol at all, which makes him kind of an anomaly in this world. Intelligent man. Not saying anybody else in the band isn't, but this guy legitimately is like top tier. And he's got the, you know, the PhD to prove it. But I think, um, I think bad religion is one of the the smartest bands member to member. They're all highly intelligent people. I mean, when you run owner operator of C of Epitaph records, you're doing something right. You know, I mean, the the band is littered with talent. Yeah. And I think if uh, past and present, I think if Brian Baker, you know, growing up in Georgetown, uh, if he had never picked up the guitar, he might be running the country right now. Wow. Or something. I mean, he's he's also brilliant. Awesome that you turned me on to Bad Religion. I appreciate you for that. Yeah, authorized biography. That's, that's yeah, authorized biography. Absolutely. Meaning that they wanted you there. An unauthorized biography would be a newer project that you're working on. Yeah, let, let me throw it back to you real quick. Yes, sir. What's your go-to bad religion album? Now, well, I mean, I, the easy one is, I like No Control. Yep. I do like Suffer, but I like to kick it old school. So for me, No Control seems to be something that I really enjoy listening to now, mm-hmm. as opposed to what I listened to before. The Grey Race, It. I was... Like that was in my heyday. I was like 19, 20 when that came out. And I was like, all right, cool. I kind of like this, but nah, I'd have to go back a little further. I had a tape like you that was presented to me. Um, and it had some punk rock music on there. It had some dead Kennedys. It had some minor threat. And then it had some like blink One Eighty Two. So it was all over the fucking place. It was all over the place. And somebody gave it to me in high school. And I was like, Oh, I like this. I like that. Cause I was a weird kid in high school. I listened to Mexican corridos. I listened to reggae and, and I listened to punk rock. So Bad Religion was on there and uh, no control for sure. But these tapes, man, they, that, that was our social media back in the day. That's what, that's where we like jumped in. And I would go out of my way to find out like a music trader was our local record store. I heard this on a tape. Do you know what it is? And they're like, yeah, man, that's fucking minor threat. I was like, all right, cool. Where can I find that? Oh, blah, 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 here. That's what, that was my Google. That was my, Hey Siri, I need help with this. Yeah. You know? So those tapes were everything to me. So now looking back, I'm like, I like more of like the no control era of, of bad religion. Right. I'm bummed. I didn't get to go, man. You went, you had a great time. I appreciate the invite. I'm bummed. I didn't get an opportunity, a chance to get out there, but just for a band like that to still fucking be firing on all cylinders with all the roster and lineup changes with the one constant always being the same there with Greg. And it's, it's just awesome, man. Yeah. They're no spring chickens and they're still out there doing their thing at the top of their game. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps that, I mean, Greg is like Keith Morris. There's not another singer like him. Right? That's a good call. He's, he's totally unique and a great singer. He introduced me into the three-part harmony. Cause that's when, when I started playing, paying close attention, attention was when 
bad religion started doing those three part albums. I said, oh, you can be melodic and and just play loud and aggressive, annoying music. Then no effects started taking it. I was like, holy shit, when no effects did that transition, I was like, oh wow, this is a great fucking band now. Cause he yeah. sings like just how he sings, like how Fat Mike sings. Yeah. But when he has Melvin in the background with the harmonies and El Jefe doing harmonies, it just sounds fucking beautiful. Yeah, and there's no bigger Bad Religion fan than, than Mike. Fat Mike, man. That that to me is crazy. Yeah. How big of a fan are you of your new project? Writing it, getting involved, prepping the work, doing all the dirty work to actually sit down, put pencil to paper, finger to, to, to keyboard with writing Corporate Rock Sucks, SST Records, the new project by Mr. Fucking Jim Rulin. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm really excited because... You know, the last two books that I did were, um, you know, I was the creative collaborator, right? That's a book by Keith Morris. That's a book by Bad Religion. And, you know, I was the writer to help mm -hmm. all the information and try to organize it into a good story. With Corporate Rock Sucks, it is just me. Yeah. There's a, it's, it's, and it also is an unauthorized biography. It falls squarely into that category because it was not written with the cooperation of, of Greg Ginn or SST Records or anyone affiliated with the label. Tell me a little bit about Greg Ginn and why you think he's not playing a part in any of this. Well, um, wow. I mean, <laughs> Greg Ginn, you know, I, uh, I interviewed Mark Lanigan, uh, rest in peace, uh, before he passed away. And he had a lot to say about how um, his relationship with the label how it went and like how good that experience was for them in the beginning and what it meant for him, but also um, just how inexplicable and enigmatic he ultimately found again, uh, who's the founder of SST records. And um, he said, he's an enigma. And, and I think that I have to go along with that because there's, there's nothing I could say in a minute, 20 minutes, an hour and a half that will sum up uh, this person. How difficult is it to take upon a project without insight or help by somebody like that telling his story about his record label? Well, um, I was very fortunate to talk to a lot of the people who worked at the record label. Um, and so that was both gratifying and rewarding. And also a lot of people that were in the van with him. Um, and it was kind of like, a, you know, the story, the stone soup story? No. It's okay. So it's, this is not a punk rock story. It's kind of like a fable of yore. I think ready to learn. I think I saw it in a movie one time. But the whole idea is like this guy, um, you know, walks into the center of town and he's got this stone, and someone comes up and says, "What? What's that?" And he's like, "Oh, this is my stone. I'm going to use this stone. I'm going to make a delicious soup. If I only had like something to put it in." The guy's like, "Oh well, I got a pot. Let me go get it." And so. More people come around. What's going on? It's like this guy's going to make us a, a soup out of uh, out of a stone. And it's like we got a pot, but we now we need some water. And now you can see where the story yeah, yeah, goes, for sure. where like the community, the village comes together and they make this feast and they do it together and they realize like you know not that we've been had, but we all did this together. We all shared in this thing. So um, for me, it was like I would talk to one person and then they would lead me to the next one. I mean, I kind of felt like that guy walking into with your stone in your hand stone saying, yeah, I'm going to write a book about SST records. And all I have is a fucking rock. Well, let me tell you about this release that we did. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Then. Yeah. So one person would tell me their story and that would lead me to other people. And, 
because it was a, a really challenging project in that regard for a couple of reasons. One, the pandemic was going on. So a lot of the people that I thought were, I would be able to talk to, they had shit going on, like real shit. Like we all did. I know I did. So you just had to say, I, yeah, I hear you, you know, good luck. And uh, if you change your mind, let me know. And then you had all these people who were like the working stiffs of the music world. Now we're just sitting at home with nothing to do. So people who I thought would be too busy for the project now had plenty of time for it. So it was kind of like a bit topsy-turvy in that regard. And, um, and then the other thing that I, I think I expected, but I didn't, I didn't come to appreciate uh, until later was the whole legal aspect of it. And, and that is, is that Greg Ginn is very litigious and has sued his, some of his artists in the past and some of his artists have sued him and there are, there are things ongoing. And also there are things that have been settled. And part of the terms of the settlement is an agreement not to talk not to say things. anything probably. Yeah. And so I respect all of that, you know, people, this is people's music and their art and their livelihood. And if they say they can't talk about it, then they can't. That must make it. this even more difficult of a story to tell. What kind of position do you put yourself in by actually, you know, taking the lead and say, I'll write this story. I'll write the story of SST records. Well, Did you have to like pay close attention to how you presented the story and, and who you spoke to and whose words you actually put forward? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I mean, I bet because I've written these books before, every book goes through a legal review, right? mm -hmm. a lawyer reads the book and they sit down and they say, you might want to reword this. <laughs> like, like this may have happened, but I don't think you can say that you smoke crack together and then they threatened you with a knife. You just, it may be true, but unless <laughs> don't do it, <laughs> you, can't, you can't say that unless it's been, you know, um, three things have happened. Either it's in the press or they've confessed about it in a book or they're dead. So, mm. um, so maybe that's a comfort to you to, to know that like someone that you hold up in a motel and smoked crack with, you know, can't. Yeah, they're not here. So thank God. I'll be all right. I'll be okay. <laughs> well, they can't put you in your memoir. Die. Jeez. So, um, so I knew that going in that this book would get a legal review. So I had a good idea what I could and couldn't say. But, but here's the other thing is that I love the music that came out of this label. So much talent. And it was so, it was way more diverse than I expected. The, the type of music, the diversity of the bands, the genres, the style of music. It was way more experimental than, than I even realized going in. Did it go the way of what Greg Ginn was involved at that time? What, what his musical uh, interests were? I mean, we all go through that change of what we like in our 18s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. You know, So I'm pretty sure if he runs this label, he owns his label, he's probably going to start signing. And you can see the theme that starts evolving of this label now, like now SST is about this. Whereas once upon a time it was who's could do and, and you know, the minute man and doing a little bit of black flag. Right. It absolutely did. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with side two of my war, which, mm. which is, you know, a slower, heavier, um, you could say black Sabbath influence, but uh, it's different. It's not, you know, it's not what you're used to. It's not in your face, yeah. super fast punk rock, which uh, which was really popular at the time, right? You had all these hardcore bands and thrash bands and crossover bands. That's happening. Well, maybe crossover isn't is not isn't happening yet. But my war was a step in a different direction. Um, but you ha then you have like bands like Saint Vitus, who I 
fucking love um, doing their amazing stuff. And uh, they're a slower, sludgier metal band. And I think like the signing of St. Vitus is a real amazing uh, insight into Greg Ginn. Because For sure. What's happening around that time? You got people wearing makeup and spandex dancing around playing hair metal on MTV, right? I mean, it was inescapable in the mid 80s. I mean, everybody saw those Guns N' Roses yeah. videos. Everyone saw those banjo Bon Jovi videos and then all the- Poison and everyone else involved, White Snake. Everything, right? So we saw all that. And so what is Greg Ginn doing? Someone that's even slower and sludgier than side two of my war, which is St. Vitus, which I'm going back to, uh, you know, Black Sabbath. Um, and is if you haven't listened to St. Vitus, you- That's the move. You really need, you need to listen to St. Vitus. So it just kind of shows that like he was just going to do his own thing no matter what. So yeah, to answer your question, it, it, it paralleled that. And then we see, um, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on it. Uh, what's the, uh, the Black Flag instrumental album? And then the side two of Family Man is instrumental. You had spoken word and instrumental. Um, so you had a ton of instrumental bands coming to SST. Reagan decided he wanted to put together a two-volume compilation of instrumental music. And it was called No Age, which is like kind of a pun on uh, New Age, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a double album. That's awesome. <laughs> a double album, right? It's like, it's like this is the, That's guy, a lot. <laughs> this is the guy who practically invented American hardcore. And he's putting out a double, double album, album of instrumental music. Kind of like, it's really kind of cool. And some like Blind India God is another um, band that I was did not know anything about going into this project. And now you're a fan. They only put out one record with SST and then they did all kinds of really fascinating collaborations with people like John Zorn and stuff like that. Oh shit. But it's an instrumental um, rock record that will just tear your head off. I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, that's a really good one. So, so yes, that did happen. You know, as he became interested in different things, you know, um, moving away from, you know, whatever the expected was. I'm excited to listen. There's many mediums to buy your book. You know, I, I, I looked at it. You gave me one of the initial copies so I can look through, read, and I did. I enjoyed it, but I pre-ordered your Audible. I'm a big fan of listening to the author tell their tale, tell their story. Yours comes out tomorrow. Yes, it does. On Tuesday, April 12th. I've been pre-ordered. I'm ready. I want to listen. I usually, I have a lot of time. I have a lot of time in the mornings because I'm at work early in the morning and I got like five hours a day to just like not talk to anybody, pop it in and be done. I think it was something like 14 hours the book is going to take me. So as soon as I get it tomorrow, I should be done by Friday, man. Oh, wow. And uh, and it'll be easier since I've already kind of got the premise from reading the book, you know? So everybody out there, I do encourage you to make sure you get it out there and purchase either online or in person. Where can people get this book in person, Mr. Jim? Well, it's funny that you say that because <laughs> I'm going to be upstairs on Saturday. Oh, my God. You're going to be making an in-person appearance here at Three Punk Ales on Saturday. That's right. I can't wait, man. I've been to one of your uh, pop-ups here that we've had before when we had a whole Golondrina El Mercado reunion and you were out on the deck in the patio slinging and, and telling your story. You're making, you're making fans out of a lot of people here at the brewery, man. And, I, and my, part of why... I wanted to bring you on you because I'm, I'm obviously I'm a fan of everything you've done. I subscribe to your newsletter, which I'm telling you, you get out there and subscribe to this newsletter. Crazy stories. You just capture an audience when you're writing and I'm reading. Well, thank you. You know, 
So for you to come out here on Saturday and set up, I'm excited. Will you be here slaying in this book? Yeah, I'll have copies of the book for sale. I'll have uh, a few copies of my other one. I got a few uh, of Do What You Want, The Bad Religion Story, mm. a couple of, uh, of other projects that I've been involved with. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a spiel and you know talk around the book, but mainly I, if you have a question about SST Records, I want to hear it. Uh, I'm here to chat and talk to people and sign books. And then also um, one thing that I want to get into is that I'm going to be giving away uh, a record from my SST collection uh, at the event. At every oh, wow. event I do, I'm going to... I'm going to give one away. What do we got to do to get that? What's going on? You just got to pay attention, homie. That's it? Oh, fuck. Yeah, well, your dick, bro. I don't pay attention, man. <laughs> can barely pay rent. It's going to be like a, a trivia question at the end of the reading. And, uh, you know, it may be like, a, a, you know, a Greg Ginn special or maybe uh, something ultra rare from uh, from the vault. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Put me into the experience of narrating your own book. What goes into that? Like, how do you how do you prepare? How long did it take? It took um, about four days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we did you lose your voice at the end of those four days? No, no. But it was it was a little hairy because like I caught uh, COVID over uh, the holidays. You know, when I was in Ireland. Yeah, you told us over the, over the the Christmas holidays. And so when I came back, um, you know, I only had like serious symptoms for a few days. So like by the time I came back, I was fine, but I had like this lingering cough. Right. And so I was like worried that like, well, how's this going to go? You know? So I was like drinking tons of tea, had a big old bag of uh, cough drops. And, um, you know, and I got to say, it was like, I had ramen for lunch every day and that kept me straight. Did it really? Yeah, nice, it really man. Yeah. I, can't, I can't wait. That Of all of the things, you know, I, I, I didn't want to focus too much on Corporate Rock Sucks, which I know probably goes against every, I'm here to talk about my new book. I wanted to talk about you. Everything that goes into wanting to become a writer, you've addressed it. Everything that goes into taking a new project on, you know, what? how do you mentally prepare? You've addressed it. How you're doing an audio book. Is this the first time you've done an audio book? Yes. You know, like, how did you do it? That's awesome, man. I want people, more people to know about what you do and how you do it for selfish reasons. Obviously. I mean, I'm a fan of what you do and, and I'm legitimately all in. Like I told you earlier, it's like any book you put out now, man, I'm, I'm in and I'm probably gonna have you on the podcast so we can pray it and t put it over the megaphone and say, Hey guys, this is what Jim's about. People really need to start following you on Instagram at Jim Vermin. Um, following your, your newsletter, purchasing these books, coming to the event on Saturday. Event on Saturday is going to be cool. It's going to be here at the brewery. You're showing up at 4 p.m. That's right. Uh, we're going to have, obviously, you know, Familia, Musica, Cerveza, Fiesta, all of the things that we do here already are going to be here. So we have another little local vendor that will be selling uh, food here at the brewery. We obviously have beers. We're going to have Jim taking questions, selling books. You're going to get to speak to the author himself. You have the old book? Do what you want. Bad religion, bring it by. Maybe he'll sign it. I'm like, this is an opportunity for people to come and actually, I'm just happy because I, I get the opportunity to do it, you know, because it, it's it's pretty cool for me. And I know people are like, oh, all of a sudden you like bad religion. Well, yeah, all of a sudden, because you fucking showed me that bad religion is more than what I thought they were. Hey, hey it's, it's never too late to change. It's never too late <laughs> to do what you want. Oh my God. I, I want to end it on that right there. Unless you have other words of wisdom for everybody, Mr. Jim. Silence is everything. Ladies and gentlemen, see you on Saturday so we can talk, meet, and hang out with Jim Rulin.